Um, how many of you have ever, uh, ever ridden a bumper cars? Okay. Now, bumper cars is an interesting little uh, ride, isn't it? <clears throat> Very interesting ride. Because um, it, it's really good to get a running start <laughs> at somebody who's not watching. All right, thanks, Crystal. And uh, it's, it's, uh, you don't want to catch them against the wall, right, because that, that diminishes the effect. Um, the, the best shots, I think, are, are when you can kind of catch them full on and then into somebody else who's not very far away. So they get the whiplash this way and then the other way. And that's, that's, that's good. Um, it's even better if the angle is just slightly off so that it's not exactly back and forth, but it's sort of back and back at a little angle kind of does good things to their neck. See, it's a, it's a great, great ride. Love it. Love it. A lot of fun. And um, <clears throat> it occurs to me that it's a little bit like life in that um, we go through life and, uh, and we're just kind of cruising along, having a good time, and wham, out of the blue comes this, you know, blow from the side, the back quarter. We had no idea it was coming. And, um, and, and what does that do for us? When you get creamed like that in the bumper car, well, you kind of want to spin that baby around and find that person. And if they're not available, well, someone else will do, right? And, and that's, uh, that's a good, uh, good parable of life, isn't it? Someone hurts us. And uh, if it's not appropriate or convenient uh, to take it out on them, well, who's next? Uh, who just happens across our path next? We tend to take it out on them. And that's why I am belaboring the point that we need to forgive one another. I have had uh, someone in, in all seriousness uh, say to me, um, do you think maybe we've had enough of this business of forgiveness? <laughs> um, and, and no doubt some of you have had more than enough because you don't have any major grudges or things that you're carrying around with you. You've already done your forgiving and, and your heart is clean. And so you really don't need to hear any of this. And I apologize to you. But for the rest of us, um, I find that it takes a while to sort of chip through the hard layers of defense that we've built up. And someone, after about the fourth or fifth week, said to me, you know, last week's sermon on forgiveness really spoke to me. <laughs> I thought, wasn't that good? Had I stopped at three, this person wouldn't have heard it yet. It takes a little while to get through. Some of us, you know, the two by four has to catch our forehead more than once before God gets our attention. So anyway, this today is the penultimate close, which means it's the next to the last. So hang in there. As the Bible says, those who endure to the end will be saved. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> uh, one last question on forgiveness, a two-way street, and then next week I want to wrap up this series with a message on forgiving God. The question this morning is, when should we forgive? And the answer is, when they ask for our forgiveness. As Jesus says in Luke 17, 3 and 4, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, 
and comes back to you seven times and says, I repent, forgive him. And in Matthew 18, verse 21 and 22, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven? The rabbi said three. Peter doubled it, added one. He thinks he's got a very high number. Shall I forgive seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or perhaps it could be translated 70 times seven. Seven times in one day, or 77 times, or 490 times. The point of these comments is, when they ask our forgiveness, we're to extend that to them over and over again without really keeping track. Jesus does not mean, I'm sure you know, keep score, and when they get to seven, or you know, uh, 77, or 490, certainly, then I can stop forgiving and lower the boom. That's not the point at all. And he goes on, right after saying 77 times, to tell the story of the unmerciful servant who owed millions and his debt was forgiven. And the point of that is, we are to be as extravagant and generous in our forgiveness as God is toward us. Many of us, I'm sure, have struggled with some habitual sin, something we fall into over and over again. We hate it. We have prayed about it. We've asked others to pray with us about it. It is embarrassing. We are humiliated. We keep doing this same thing. We, we fall into sin. We beg God's forgiveness. We repent. We cry out to him for his help, and then we do it again. And if you've experienced anything like that, then you know how important it is that we go to a God who extends unconditional, totally accepting, repeatedly forgiving love and grace to us. And his word to us is, forgive just as God in Christ forgave you, over and over and over again. 1 Peter 4.8 says it well, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude, a multitude of sins. Now the question naturally arises from these passages, what about the matter of personal boundaries? Am I just supposed to keep forgiving people when they keep coming back and sinning against me time and time again, allowing people to, to walk over me, repeatedly hurting me? Think of the, the woman whose uh, husband abuses her. And every time he does, he cries, he begs her forgiveness, he promises never to do it again. And then, of course, he does it again. So is she just supposed to stay there and keep taking it? I can't imagine that's good for her, or for him, or for the kids who are watching it. Or think of an overbearing mother who repeatedly shames and manipulates her grown son into doing whatever she asks because she's the victim. Poor her. Nobody understands. You've got to help me. And so on and so on. Yeah. How long does this go on? Forever? Or is there a place where he can draw the line in the sand and say, Mom, this has to stop how do we understand Jesus' comments to forgive repeatedly in light of these kinds of real-life situations where people are treading on our personal boundaries? Well, neither of these passages indicates the offense is the same every time. In, in the Luke passage, it's seven times in one day, but not necessarily the same sin. In fact, if someone commits the same offense against us and keeps coming back to repent, I would begin to question the repentance. Repentance means not just to say you're sorry, or even just to feel sorry, but to turn around, to change your ways. If you keep coming back to me with the same sin every time, you're not really repenting, no matter what you say. We should forgive them. We should forgive them anyway, for the sake of our own spiritual health and emotional well-being. But let's not be naive about being reconciled to them, and we don't have to continue to allow them to abuse us. 
And Jesus isn't speaking here in these passages about deliberate repeated sin either. We should forgive a person who intentionally rides roughshod over our personal boundaries, but we're not required to let them continue doing that. I've said before that forgiveness does not mean there is no consequences to their sin. And one of those consequences might be that we draw a line, we set a boundary, we say, this has to stop. I'm not going to let you do that anymore. Very firmly, gently, it's going to stop. And maybe that means I'm going to have to restrict or limit our contact because I, I can't put up with this. I won't put up with this. I'm not required by Jesus to put up with this over and over again until you can learn to respect me as a person. So Jesus isn't really addressing those kinds of situations when he says, forgive without limit when they ask us to. He's speaking to the situation where an individual unintentionally hurts us and sincerely apologizes and asks for our forgiveness. But what about when they don't ask for our forgiveness? Well, then we're supposed to do it as well. Some people can't ask for our forgiveness because they're dead or they're the parents who gave us up for adoption or abandoned us. Some people won't ask for our forgiveness. They don't think they did anything wrong to us or they just don't care that they did anything wrong to us. And others may formally apologize. They say the right words. It's like the little kids, you know, the siblings. Apologize to your sister, Tommy. I'm sorry. You know, is he sorry? He's not sorry. He says the words. And sometimes people will do that. They manipulate us. If they say they're sorry, then they think we have to forgive them. No, we don't. See, not because they said some phony baloney thing like that. Right? See, but we forgive them anyway from our hearts because it's the right thing to do because that's what God asks of us. I've been talking throughout this series of our need to unilaterally forgive those who offend us. But that's only half the story. Jesus says forgiveness is a two-way street. Regardless of who sinned against whom, we should meet in the middle, coming to be reconciled, seeking the other out to make it right. One way the street runs is for the offended person. Mark 11:25. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, if you're the offended party, if they've sinned against you, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So in this regard, we're to be like God, who was the offended party in our sins, yet came looking for us, took the initiative to be reconciled. In the Garden of Eden, he required nothing of Adam and Eve before he came looking for them. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still headed our own way, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, which we didn't, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. This is the consistent picture of God in the Bible, the God who reaches out to those who have thumbed their noses at him, the God who pursues us, who spit on his honor and glory, who seeks reconciliation with people who insist that the creator has nothing to do with the creature. God is the offended one, but he took the initiative to be reconciled to us, and that's our role when we've been sinned against. At the very least, we should forgive them in our hearts, but ideally, we should go to them, talk to them about their offense, and forgive them. You know, in the vast majority of cases where people are on the outs with each other, the offender didn't know it or didn't realize that that would be taken as an offense. They were just a momentary lapse in their awareness of how they were coming across or what they were doing, how it might have been taken by us. And, and they just would, you know, are disappointed that the relationship seems to have thinned and maybe they don't understand why. But all too often we sit over in our little corner, sulking, waiting for them to apologize when the Bible tells us what we must do. We must go to them and forgive. Make it right. Determine now to go to that person and very gently share with them 
what they've done that hurt, that hurt you and offer your forgiveness. If they apologize, you have won your friend back. If they don't, you can leave with a clear conscience. You've done your part. But let me try to balance the picture a little bit. Forgiveness is a two-way street. And the other direction the street runs is for the offender. For the offender. Again, Jesus says, Matthew 5, 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar, a very similar setting, and there remember that your brother has something against you. In this instance, we're the offenders. Your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You know, it's not just possible, but it is certain that uh, each of us who feels like we are the victim of some horrible offense is also the offender in some other situation, maybe even in that same relationship. We are not innocent victims. We are sinners too, who we unintentionally or sometimes intentionally hurt the people who matter to us. So what I'd like to have you do for a moment is to think about some of those relationships and just examine your heart before God and see if there's anything that he says to you about maybe your brother has something against you. You might want to close your eyes, just reflect as I suggest some things you should consider. We'll start with family members. These are the ones that's easiest to offend because we're much less polite at home. Is there anyone in your immediate family or your extended family that you've hurt? Parents, think about the ways you've treated your kids lately. Children, grown children, what about you and your parents? Or your brother and sister? I talked to a man recently who said he didn't talk to his sister for 14 years because of some offense. He has kids who are in late high school and early college. His sister's never seen his children. Anything like that going on in your family? Are you at least partly to blame for it? How's it with your mate? Any offenses there that need to be cleared up? Or what about at work? That's sometimes a not very nice social environment. Lots of backstabbing and politics and gossip and one-upsmanship. Have you consistently applied the golden rule to your relationships at work? Have you been the kind of, of employer and co-work, employee and coworker uh, that uh, you would like to have? Consider your neighborhood. Sometimes we just ignore the people we live next to, but sometimes we inadvertently go beyond ignoring them and, and actually offend them. Have you been the kind of neighbor you want next door? Shortly after we moved into our house last May, um, my neighbor came over and I was on the phone. He knocked on the door. I was kind of distracted, flustered by his presence at the door. I chatted with him very briefly and sent him off in a real curt manner. And, and moments later, I thought, oh, that wasn't very friendly. I, I, I had no call to treat him that way. So I, I went next door. I found him in his garage. I apologized. It's good I did. He had taken me for a pretty gruff, unfriendly kind of guy, which certainly isn't the way I want to be. You know? uh, how are you doing with your neighbors? And what about in the church? This is supposed to be the place where we're one in Christ, but all too often we're insensitive to a friend. Uh, we share a piece of, uh, of confidential information disguised as a prayer request. Uh, we betray a friendship. Uh, there's division. We say or do the wrong thing. We don't do something they were hoping or expecting from us. Is there anyone in this church you are not one with emotionally, that there is some distance, some, some offense between you? That's your fault. Okay. 
in both of these cases that Jesus mentions here, whether Jesus is addressing the offended party or the offended or offender, the context is worship. In Mark 11, he says, when you stand praying. And in Matthew 5, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar. The obvious implication is that a breach in our relationship with one another creates a breach in our relationship with God. King David understood this when he wrote in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge me. David had sinned against Bathsheba and against your, her husband Uriah, but he knew that ultimately he had sinned against their maker, God himself. And that's always true. Whether we offend someone or whether we refuse to extend forgiveness to those who offend us, our sin is ultimately against God, their maker. And it creates a breach between him and us. It hinders our prayers, our worship, our sense of intimacy with him, our ability to hear from his word. It robs us of our joy and our peace in Christ and on and on. Sin hinders our walk with God. And it breaks our fellowship with others. We can't be one with someone if we're harboring a grudge against them. See, our unity costs Jesus Christ his life, but it's broken by our refusal to forgive or to repent. And these broken relationships need a bridge. We need some way to get back across that chasm that we've created by our sin or by our refusal to forgive sin. The bridge is a two-way street, isn't it? One side, one lane runs across and it's marked forgive. And the other lane is marked repent. And usually we have to go both directions eventually because there's nothing in our hearts that's very pure and clean and simple and just one-sided. We have to repent and we have to forgive. I urge you to walk across that bridge. God has created the bridge. He's shown us where it is. He points us to it. He says, I'll help you cross it. But only we can walk across the bridge into a relationship, into reconciliation with our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, a number of you have told me this series of sermons on forgiveness has been speaking to you. I'm glad to hear that, and I know that there are many others who need to respond to this message from God's Word. I'm convinced that we cannot be a healthy church until we have dealt with some of these important issues between us. How can you go to our friends outside the church and, and you know, tell them what a wonderful Savior Jesus is, what a fantastic difference he's made in our lives if uh, we're still mucking around in our hurt and bitterness and unforgiveness? If Jesus doesn't work for us, why should we think he'd work for someone else? Oh, but he does work for us, doesn't he? And it's us who don't work. It's us who don't do our part. He tells us what we have to do. He gives us his spirit, his encouragement. He promises to help us in the process. We have to obey. A phrase from the Old Testament, I think, is appropriate here. It comes out of 1 Samuel 15. The background of the story is that God told Saul, king of Israel, to attack the Amalekites and wipe them out because of the way the Amalekites had treated Israel on their way in their wilderness wanderings. 1 Samuel 15:9. pick it up here. But Saul and the army spared the king of the Amalekites, King Agag, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good they spared. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Samuel. God said, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. 
When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel said, Really? What's this bleating of sheep in my ears? What's this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and I brought back their king, Agag. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Here's the application for us. We may do a lot of things that fall under the general heading of sacrifice. Things that we would call religious observances. We come to church. We give as generously as we can. We serve in volunteer positions in the church. We read our Bibles. We go to Bible studies in Sunday school, and we pray, and we memorize Scripture, and fast, and go on mission trips, and so on and so on. But if we are not willing to obey God when we hear him speak to us about forgiving and repenting, then we have missed the boat. To obey is better than sacrifice. It is better to obey God on the point where he is speaking to us about our lives than to go through all the religious observances in the world. Saul tried to justify his disobedience by saying, well, I disobeyed in order to make sacrifices. That didn't fly with God. He wants our obedience. I've tried in these series, a series of sermons to give all sorts of biblical reasons why we should forgive others. And I think it's pretty obvious why we should repent and ask them to forgive us. But the bottom line is this, friends. To obey is better than sacrifice. What God really wants from us is our obedience. And it comes down to that. It's not a question of, can I see the value in it for me? It's, will you obey? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So I want to call us all, including myself, to obedience on this point. Is there someone you need to forgive? Then do it. Do it. Do it now. No matter how hard it may be, no matter how serious their offense and is there someone that you've offended, that you've stepped on, you've been insensitive to? Go ask their forgiveness. Apologize. No matter how long ago it was, no matter how trivial it may seem to you, make it right. And do it today. Don't wait. If that person is in this room, do it before you leave here today. And if they're not here, when you get home, you call them, you write to them, you say, I need to talk to you. Make it right to obey is better than sacrifice.